I don't have that. Look, look, the hospital. And welcome to All in the Mind. Natasha Mitchell here on ABC Radio National. Great to have your company. Today, producer Gretchen Miller will draw you into the wondrous world of the child's imagination. Pure naive fantasy or cognitive scaffolding for the future. To kick us off, here's seven-year-old Finn with his mum, Jackie. Who do you like to pretend to be? I like to pretend to be lots of things. Ninja Turtles... Knights and Star Wars guys. Your imagination is one of the things that makes you human. From the time we started painting on cave walls, it set us apart from other mammals. The imagination allows us to reconsider the past, to plan the future and to dream of other possibilities. But developmentally speaking, when does the imagination take flight? Are we born in a mysterious world of infant fantasy to slowly emerge into the harsh light of reality? Or do we need the seed of knowledge to take root, to give our imagination something to play with? It's believed the imagination comes into its own as a means of making sense of the world around us. Carl Rosengren is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Illinois. His research has explored how children learn and reason about the world. And he argues that children are hardwired for imagining. I think human infants come into the world prepared to establish or look for causal relationships. So instead of thinking that things just happen by accident or are random, there seems to be kind of a human desire to look for causes. And I think this is one of the, the things that also clearly leads to you know, superstition and other kinds of things, because we, we try to always put together some kind of causal relationship, um, even when one doesn't exist. And, you know, I think one of the other things that you might think about is that this is kind of tied into establish some meaning to an event. That is, if it, it has a human cause or some other kind of cause, you can uh, establish some meaning to that, that that helps you perhaps understand it better. So it's a search for meaning. That's what I would argue, is, is that we come into the world really trying to search for what causes one thing to happen, and we assume, if it's not obvious, that it does have some kind of cause. The Earth is an extraordinary place. In nature, creatures change sex, change colour and change form. The human world is scarcely less extraordinary. Try explaining electricity to a child. And then there are more bizarre possibilities to contend with. Ghosts, witches, UFOs, Santa Claus, pure fiction. The early work of French psychologist Jean Piaget with children in the 1930s still resonates loudly today. He believed children inhabit an inner world in which reality plays a poor second cousin to egocentrism and fantasy. Piaget thought that children could not distinguish these different realms at all. And if anything, they sort of blurred the boundaries between fantasy and reality. And a lot of children's thinking, according to Piaget, was quite magical because they, they couldn't separate these boundaries. What I would argue is that, that children actually do have a pretty difficult time negotiating you know, the real from the, the magical. I don't think any of us are extremely rational or, um, <laughs> or scientific in our reasoning. And I, I think actually most of us have a mixture of magical and scientific reasoning about the world. And, and part of it is because I think we're always looking for these causal relations, even when they don't exist. 
psychologist associate professor Carl Rosengren. Piaget studied the nature of pretend play, from early childhood simple imitations, like pretending to sleep or have a cup of tea, to the three-year-olds giving their toys personalities or pretending to be someone else, a fireman or a superhero. This helps a child develop a so-called theory of mind, the understanding that other people think differently to themselves. It's intimately connected with the developing imagination, and its absence can point to developmental problems like autism. That's the argument of Paul Harris, who's Professor of Education at Harvard University and author of The Work of the Imagination. But working in the 1930s, Jean Piaget didn't see it that way. He saw pretend play as primitive, and the use of the imagination as a cognitive filler, en route to a more logical adult way of thinking. Paul Harris. He tended to be, if not negative, at least cautious in assuming that it had any progressive or long-term role to play in the child's cognitive economy, so to speak. So for him, the imagination was uh, a symptom of the child's tendency to assimilate reality to his or her own ideas, and in so doing, to distort it and rearrange it. So for Piaget, there wasn't much emphasis on the way that the imagination might contribute to the child's longer-term cognitive development. In fact, it was something that the child had to move through in order to get to, to the logical, rational thought, which is seen to be more adult. Certainly that was his formulation in the early years, that as the child's objectivity uh, waxed, so to speak, then um, so his imagination and fantasy life would be inclined to wane. So did he see a clear opposition between imaginative and logical thinking? Certainly in his early years that was the way he, he framed it. He talked about imaginative thinking uh, by using the phrase autistic thinking, which he borrowed from the psychoanalyst uh, Bloiler. And for Bloiler, it was the question of free association and fantasy. And Piaget's early research led him to think that children become more logical as they get older, and he tended to think that that <coughs> increase in logic would suppress the child's inclination towards irrationality and fantasy. So he saw it as a lack of coherence, a, a lack of engagement with reality. Why is that not useful? Where do you diverge from Piaget? Well, in the sense that, for me, I think the child can indeed depart from reality by using their imagination, but they can depart in such a way as to get a different perspective, so to speak, on, on reality. Um, so to give you a couple of examples, if the child is willing to look at a situation from somebody else's point of view, that often calls for the child to set their own point of view to one side. But, of course, in adopting somebody else's point of view, the child is also grasping social realities, grasping the way in which uh, another person's mind works in a, in a very effective fashion. Another example is when children think back about past events and ask themselves how some mishap, for example, that they may have produced, such as a, a spillage or a leakage, might have been prevented. And in doing that, they will often say things like, if I'd only done such and such. Well, those thoughts are effectively conjuring up some alternative in their imagination which didn't actually take place but had it taken place would have prevented the, the accident that they've encountered and of course that kind of thinking is not terribly different at least from a structural point of view from the kind of thinking that we engage in as adults if 
it's an accident or tragedy has befallen us. And it's not very different from the more rarefied counterfactual or what-if thinking that historians engage in when they try to imagine how events might have turned out differently had some particular episode not taken place or if somebody had taken a different turn at the, uh, at the crossroads, historically speaking. So you're actually saying that logical thinking is dependent on imagination, that without imagination you may not be able to come to these um, analytical positions. Yes, exactly. The child would be, so to speak, locked in current reality and you can't really get a, a take or a grip on current reality if you're, if, if you're too immersed in it. Paul Harris. Now, Carl Rosengren's research at the University of Illinois has shown that parents also have a role to play. Take magic. In the West, at least, parents have a tendency to encourage preschool kids to delight in magic. But once they're off to school, they're expected to switch to logic and reason. So if our world is so biased towards the real, why not bypass the magic altogether? Carl Rosengren. It's clearly a lot of fun to engage in sort of magical play with children. I think part of it is that we all wish there really was magic. The world would be kind of a more interesting place. And, you know, I think so. some of that is, is just adults really probably wish there was more magic in the world. And I think the other thing is that we do enjoy watching children wonder and amazement at things. What about when a magician pulls a rabbit out of the hat? I saw a magician and he pulled out the bird and then he put it in the cage and then he pulled it out and then turned it and then it was in a wine glass. Where did the birdie come from? From his hat. One of the things that's interesting is that if you talk to magicians, and in some of my work I went around and talked to magicians and asked them about things, and they actually hate doing magic shows with children under the age of three. And one of the reasons for that is that the children haven't had as many experiences in the world, and they're not quite so amazed by some of the things the magicians do. So a sense so, of magic is actually something that you are not born with innately, um, right. but you develop it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, and this is also something that, that Paul Harris has argued as well. And it's the idea that children have to learn something about the world before they can see that there's a violation. So, in a sense, magic can exist because children see a violation of sort of the natural world. Mm. And adults in the culture label these events as either fantastic or magical. According to Piaget, there was all this blurring of magic into the real world. And actually, a lot of my own research suggests that children, their default is kind of a natural physical, mechanical causality, and it's only in certain kind of contexts, like, you know, talking about Santa Claus or being around the holiday season, that they begin to bring in this kind of magical thinking in, in a particular kind of situation. And, and that's one of the things I find very fascinating. It's the default is not magic. The default is kind of a, a rational, natural causality. Do you know who Santa Claus is? Yes. Who? He's Santa Claus. What does he do? He brings people presents. Where does Santa Claus live? Um, up in the sky. Is that a long way away? Yes, up in the sky. 
And what about Santa? Is he real or is he pretend? Pretend. Well, if you know him, he's real. If you believe in him, is he real? Yes. But if you don't believe in him, he's not real. And I think four-year-old Rory has a point. It's all in your mind after all, here on ABC Radio National, Radio Australia and The Net. Now, as we've heard, French psychologist Jean Piaget was convinced that preschool children had little sense of the boundaries between what's real and imagined. But Paul Harris's research into the pretend play of two-year-olds shows they know very well the difference between the two, and the imagination plays a vital role here. I would argue that that distinction comes in quite early. So, for example, if you talk to young children who have an imaginary companion, for example, if you talk to them about that imaginary companion, they're quite aware that this this companion uh, or friend is different from a flesh-and-blood friend. I mean, they realise that uh, they can see this friend in their mind's eye, but other people can't see the companion. They also realise that, in some sense, imagined entities, whether it's um, the sword that you imagine or the, the friend that you imagine, you can do more things with those entities uh, mentally than you can do with a, a real sword or a real friend. I mean, you can imagine the sword having magical powers, whereas you can't confer magical powers on a real sword. Or you can invest your friend with all sorts of traits, whereas you're, so to speak, stuck with the uh, the traits that your genuine friend has. So they're also alert to the power of the imagination from a very early age. I think one of the reasons why people are tempted to assume that children are occasionally muddled about the distinction between fantasy and reality is because they often become emotionally absorbed and occasionally, of course, uh, apprehensive about things that they've conjured up in their imagination. So they may be playing at monsters and suddenly feel slightly overwhelmed, even though it's their fantasy that's triggering the, the apprehension. So they have a harder well, time disengaging emotionally? Well, I think insofar as these make-believe entities trigger emotion, they're not very different from adults. You know, if you think about the various films that we're tempted to go to see, we even name those films uh, in terms of the emotion they evoke, so we distinguish between... Uh, horror movies and comedies and thrillers and so forth. But of course, it's also possible that children are um, a little bit more swept away than we adults are. We adults, after all, can studiously remind ourselves that this is just a a film that we're sitting in. But ultimately, I would say that children, if we interrupt them and say, look, is this for real, can tell us, no, this is not for real. This is a piece of fiction. As far as I understand it, a monster does not spring from a child's imagination without some seed being planted there. So, again, to get back to Piaget, imagination isn't something that that the child is born with and then, as they gain more knowledge, moves past and grows out of. It's actually something that, that comes and becomes more complex with knowledge. Yes, I mean, I think often when we look at children's pretend play, especially if we've been looking at the clinical literature, Um, we look at the more extreme, perhaps um, emotionally charged uh, fantasies that a child might have. On the other hand, if we focus on 
the early development of pretend play, it's fairly prosaic and it reflects the kind of routines that children have become used to in the first year or 18 months of life. So the child might pretend to go to sleep or the child might pretend to be having a meal or, or, or drinking some tea. And of course, it's fairly self-evident that the child's imagination is deploying a familiar script that's borrowed from, from real life. That isn't to say, of course, that children's imagination is not fed by other media than real life. We, it's obviously the case that children are also going to be read stories and to watch uh, television, and that may well trigger their imagination as well. But I'm inclined to say that um, the child's imagination, as you nicely put it, requires some kind of uh, seed for it to get to work. Are you scared of monsters? Um, yes. <laughs> you don't sound scared of monsters. Why are you scared of them? Because they bite. They bite? Yes. What do they look like? But monsters are not real. You sure? Yes, they're not real. So if they're not real, how come you're scared of them? Because... Mm, uh, what do monsters do? They bite So how do we plant the seed of the imagination into the child's developing mind? The arts are one opportunity, and a three-year study of 135 children in Adelaide is looking at the impact regular attendance at the theatre can have. Most of the children had never seen a live performance before. The study's director is Professor Wendy Schiller from the Delissa Institute of Early Childhood and Family Studies at the University of South Australia. And she says after two years, she's surprised by the results. Surprised by the diversity of the response, surprised by the uh, depth of the feeling that it created in the children, and really um, surprised by the immediacy of the uh, feedback. We thought that, you know, with television and going to the movies, that it might be mediated by kind of other media, but in fact it's kind of undiluted by any of that, which was a real... That's probably the biggest surprise that we've received. And one of the mothers uh, sent in a delightful story of how her child had cut out an advertisement for the uh, performance from the uh, paper and had slept with it under his pillow every night until he went to the performance and then didn't finish there he got a program at the performance and then brought that home and slept with that under his pillow and regaled everybody who came to the house with stories of you know the performance and acted bits of the performance and his mum said he's really a quiet child she was just astonished by the um, amount he'd remembered and by the impact of it on his general being his general behavior and and how much he told uh, was able to tell people that came to the house. Did you have much reportage from parents or teachers about the way the children reacted imaginatively mm -hmm. to what they'd seen? Did it trigger or awaken an imaginative response? <laughs> yes, and in some very different ways. Some children um, got busy once they got back into the classroom and started projects, and these were all self-initiated projects. And so some wanted to build sets. Uh, one of the um, performances we went to had a revolving set, 
And so about six of the boys actually set up a, a revolving set. And so they were fascinated by the mechanics of that. Other children took off on the actually the elements of performance. And so they, they would set up a stage and an audience and get all of the seating right. And other children said very little, but in fact their drawings are just full of life and colour and depict very accurately what they saw on the screen. And for others, they wrote stories, wrote their own stories, some of them for the first time. Um, did any parents report that the theatre was, was expanding these children's thinking in an expanded sort of way? There were some really insightful comments from the older children. Some of them said, well, arts is kind of the eye of things or it's the colours of the world, including black and white. So they would relate it to their own situation. It might have been somebody that there'd been an upset in the playground and they would play that out. They'd write that scenario out. But the the big change and the big thing that the parents noticed was how widely it was applied to their everyday lives. And in fact, the parents said they could see themselves portrayed very vividly in the plays that the kids were either putting on for the neighbours or that they were doing at school. Professor Wendy Schiller from the University of South Australia. Now, while children are busy establishing the realms of the imagination and reality, how do they make sense of a third dimension, like religion? Well, as with religiously inclined adults, children appear to move comfortably between the real world and the spiritual. Whether they believe in God in quite the same way as they believe in sticks and stones is something that we need more research on. So just how readily children take on board these uh, extraordinary beings. And I guess we could make the same points about children's attitude toward Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. I mean, children tend to accept the claims of adults about those special beings and the extraordinary feats of which they're capable, but whether they think of them as existing in just as prosaically and straightforwardly as they think of the family dog existing or their house existing is another matter. Religions are a particularly important and useful construct when explaining or coming to grips with a subject like death as well, isn't mm -hmm. it? Death mm -hmm. becomes quite significant to children at a certain point. Can you explain how they start to understand it and, and the different ways that children of different ages think about death? Again, death is something which psychologists have uh, been inclined to focus on as, as a quasi scientific concept in the sense that um, the child who understands it biologically will realize that it's uh, due to the process of aging, that it's inevitable, that it's irreversible. So some psychologists have neglected, in my judgment, the ways in which children are slowly um, exposed to and come to make sense of um, other claims about what happens when we die, namely the religious claim that, you know, there's an afterlife. So if I tell the story developmentally, and I should be tentative here because the research is in its early stages, but it looks as if uh, children of five and six are fairly clear about the biological story. What you don't hear from five and six-year-olds is much talk about uh, an afterlife. If you talk to older children, you know, 10, 11 years of age, they seem to have developed uh, almost two different modes of discourse. On the one hand, they can reaffirm the biological claims that I've just mentioned, but they can also, depending upon 
how you question them and how you probe them. They will also tell you about the fact that when people die, they go to heaven, or when people die, they join God, and in that state, so to speak, they can continue to feel or think or see or have experiences. So by the time the child is in late, in the later years of, of middle childhood, a, a, a pre-adolescent, they seem to have um, constructed two different ideas about death, one that's straightforwardly biological and another that's theological. And of course, in that sense, they're not so different from most adults. What happens when an animal dies? All the blood comes out and they, um, they can't come back to life again. Where do we go when we die? Nowhere. Where do our bodies go? To heaven. What about our minds? What happens to those? They don't... they shut down. And what about our dreams? Where do our dreams go? To faraway places. Happy places? Yep. Or bad places. How the heck does a child figure out how to talk about this, how to think about this? And this is one area where children get all sorts of mixed messages, and they get them all the time. How do they sort that out? Do they kind of blend them together and come up with a kind of combination of biological and magical or religious kinds of explanations? Or do they kind of compartmentalize them um, and use one kind of explanation uh, in one situation and another kind of explanation in a different one? Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so one of the things we've been doing in this current research is doing interviews with uh, clinicians that have interviewed children with, you know, really horrible death experiences of a parent or whatever. And there was this one child that was treated by this clinician. Her, her mother had died, and she was very concerned about her, her mother being very, very tired. And as the clinician kind of probed and tried to understand what was going on, the child said, well, I know my mom's up in heaven, and that means she's up in the clouds, and every day I go out and I, I look up at the clouds, and I can't see my mother's legs hanging over the clouds. And the clinician was trying to understand this, and apparently the child was thinking, well, her mom is getting very tired standing on these clouds, and so she should be sitting down, and her feet should hang over the clouds. So this is kind of a mixture of this kind of standard biological model of life and death with this kind of mixture of, of, of religious beliefs. And so I would argue this is kind of this blended model of children thinking in this particular domain. Carl Rosengren there, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Illinois and before him Professor of Education Paul Harris from Harvard University. He's the author of The Work of the Imagination, published by Blackwell. Both speaking to the producer of today's show, Gretchen Miller. And a big thanks to Jackie May and her two gorgeous little boys, seven-year-old Finn and four-year-old Rory, for sharing the contents of their worldly imaginations with us. And you'll find relevant references, the transcript, audio and our email on our website at abc.net.au slash rn. Click on All in the Mind under Programs and there we are. Sound engineer is Jen Parsonage. I'm Natasha Mitchell. I look forward to catching you in the real world next week. Take care. Now what do I do?